Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is episode 37. This is actually episode 37 now, this time. Um, and uh, I am joined again by Maggie Park and Ben Davis. We're not all in the same place today, unfortunately, but we're joining you. And in fact, Maggie isn't actually even in a place right now. She's in, she's in the in-between in place. Yeah, it's sort of like the wood between the worlds in The Magician's Nephew. That's kind of where Maggie's yeah. joining us from. She's actually literally in the middle of moving house right now, which is why she is broadcasting on her laptop with no microphone and no mic, no lights. Yeah. Uh, in the dining room off my sister-in-law's kitchen. <laughs> and I know the dogs are going to lose it when they get home. So if I go on mute, that's why. Yeah. I'm very much in the in-between of my life. So yeah. thanks guys. I'm yeah. glad to be here oh, and not man, thinking are... about the move and talking about Aragorn. <laughs> We are just grateful to have you with us here today. Uh, at your 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 presence is. I just wanted to emphasize how heroic your presence is here today, uh, so, so that people understand. I literally understand. texted I texted Corey like an hour ago, being like, "We just dropped off the keys. I'm 45 minutes away. I should be there almost on time." Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So we're currently homeless. We're moving into our new place in like two weeks. So we're staying with my sister-in-law for a couple weeks. So it's, it's been a ride, folks. Yeah. It's been a ride. It's been a ride. Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, so we were last time. What? So I, I mentioned the um, uh, my crack about the actual episode 37, of course. Uh, many of you will remember. Those of you who are attending live may remember our attempt to broadcast. We had technical difficulties last time um, and didn't end up being able to recover it. So we ended up um, we ended up having to uh, scrap the stub of an episode that we were able to do last time. So we're going to go back uh, and address that topic because it's one that we've been really excited to discuss. We're returning to our discussion of... Um, uh, of the Peter Jackson films, um, we've been well. We're not. We've been. We've been systematic, but we've been deliberate uh, in looking yeah. at you know different elements of we've the Peter Jackson adaptation. We've been more structured adaptation. than we usually are. Yeah, exactly. Um, because of course, the Peter Jackson adaptation of the Lord of the Rings deserves more than just a you know a one or two off episode, you know, talking about it. So we're looking at different elements of it. And again, the one of the goals of this is that. Having, having spent some time now, you know, having having spent, uh, you know, the better part of a year um, discussing adaptation and thinking about what this looks like and how it works and, and some of the factors involved, um, you know, there's, there's some reasons why we've waited this long to talk about the Peter Jackson films, I think, in some ways, um, and really focusing on how do we how do we apply that? Let's not, let's now look back at the Peter Peter Jackson adaptation. Um, which I think is, you know, you can still see a lot of ways in which um, the approach to the Peter Jackson films is often still problematic, whether it's from Tolkien fans who are still resistant to them, which there are still many of those that exist, um, or whether it's people who grew up with them and who think about them quite differently. And, and I mean, it was one thing that I was noticing, certainly, when uh, during Rings of Power season last year, um, the very different ways in which people were approaching the Peter Jackson films uh, and the Rings of Power. Um, so we're thinking about the Peter Jackson um, 
the the Peter Jackson films. Alana, that's a wonderful thing to say. Alana says uh, this broadcast has completely changed the way that I look at any TV show uh, or film. Um, it I, that that's wonderful to hear. That's this has been such a learning process for me as well. I also have had my perspective very significantly changed as we have been working through these things. Just taking the time to think through what is going on. It is so easy to not think about it. But anyway, all right, so let's so let's talk. So today we're talking about Aragorn, the character of Aragorn. We've been looking at a few major characters. We talked about Elrond. We talked about Galadriel. We're still focusing mostly on the Fellowship of the Ring. We're not going to like pretend the other two films don't exist, but we're still really wanting to focus on how these things get established in the Fellowship of the Rings film. Oh, and I didn't mention, we're also joined by Ben Davis over here from Studio <laughs> Lab uh, uh, in, in Terry. He uh, um, was, of course, the director of Rings and Realms um, and was uh, with us last time when we... Uh, when we Tried to discuss this together. Yes, tried and failed. But uh, anyway, so Aragorn. We did discuss this together. You guys just didn't get to see it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We had a good discussion. We went for it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, So we are, in talking about Aragorn's character, um, There's an interesting contrast between looking at the depiction of Aragorn in The Fellowship of the Ring and looking at the depiction of Galadriel, which was the last conversation that we had about the Peter Jackson films. Because very few Tolkien readers, um, when they saw, you know, Kate Blanchett's depiction of Galadriel in The Fellowship of the Ring, were like, oh my gosh, they changed so much! Like, you know, there there was very little temptation, right? I mean, there are things you might, you know, dislike or disagree with. There are lots of interesting things to notice. And we were talking about that there are some actually fairly profound changes uh, that they make, especially to her temptation moment um, in the film, more even than a lot of people remember. However, um, the, um, uh, the Aragorn depiction is in a quite different category. The Aragorn depiction, certainly when the Fellowship of the Ring came out and, you know, was the only thing that we, any of us had seen. I think it's fair to say that Aragorn was at the absolute top of the list of like things that Tolkien fans were struggling with when they were looking at this adaptation. Um, The changes made to Aragorn's character are far more profound than the changes made to Galadriel's character or even to Elrond's character. Um, And it was something that a lot of Tolkien fans had a hard time grappling with. Um, uh, uh, it, when it when it came out, so so this is a in some ways kind of a, one of the one of the 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 weightier and trickier topics uh, to to you know that we've uh, discussed yet when it comes to the Peter Jackson films. Um, but I don't want to start from that perspective. Right. I don't want to start with the like first. Let's talk about everything they got wrong about Aragorn. Like that's that's not the point, right? Um, let's talk about the story they told. Let's talk about the story they told. So. <clears throat> Maggie, why don't you talk about what you see as like as as sort of important or effective or or interesting about the role of Aragorn in that first film? Like, you know, if if you were trying to explain to somebody who didn't know the movie, right? Like, what mm-hmm. is what is essential to Aragorn's role in that story? What are the things that you would emphasize? I feel like there's two ways to look at that. So one is knowing story structure and, and, and outlines and and archetypes and all that kind of stuff that if, 
The hobbits had just crossed over the first major threshold and we're now in the world of men and we've seen that it is other, you know, they're at the lower door, mm-hmm. not the high door, getting into the yes. debris, but they're at the lower door. We've got hobbit-sized beds. Like, they are the other now. Yes. So now that they've kind of crossed that first threshold and we're in this other world, sorry, the dog's scratching his collar, um, <laughs> I am then introduced to <clears throat> Aragorn slash Strider, mysterious, creepy dude in the corner of the bar, I'm immediately suspicious, but also incredibly curious because it's introducing this new factor in this new world that's going to definitely change the trajectory of whatever they're on. We just don't know what it is yet. So just as like a tool, it's a red flag or it's not red because it's not a warning, but it's a a gold glittery shiny flag for Mm -hmm. me to be like, interesting, we've got something here. Right. Um, Right. So like if you're aware of the story type, I think that that idea is really interesting and who we get is this like unknown secret mysterious brooding pipe the lighting is beautiful on his eyes yeah the the red glow on his face right right just this little hint the slow kind of yeah Yeah. so then the other way of looking at this i think is just like general standard moviegoer right like i don't know any of this stuff but i know that these people i've been following in this safe little space are now not in a safe little space so Mm -hmm. It's fun to put the structure on it and be like, oh, this guy is an implement for storytelling because he's going to change the trajectory. He's going to enter us into the next quadrant of action, you know? Yeah. But it doesn't really matter if you know the structures or not. I just find that kind of fun. But yeah, I think it's yeah. the same either way. If I could add quickly to that, that I, I wasn't really thinking about this until you mentioned that. But that idea of him as that kind of transitional figure, um, I think of the this him grabbing Frodo. Like he physically picks Frodo up and hauls him into another room, right? The um, and he's taking him out of danger um, in but. that moment, right? But um, but there is that. I mean, the 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 way in which he serves as the character who brings the hobbits like across that threshold, right, is is almost literalized in how he, I mean, like he like we just see a hand grabbing Frodo, and then the next cut is to Frodo being plopped in yeah. the in the room right um so he he literally changes the scene uh you know and and brings frodo from one place to another um and so yeah we, we, i think i'm just i'm just kind of piling on that we can i you know that 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 role seems to be something that um they really leaned but that's into. also really but that's also such a good point to point out though because it takes him from being this like subtle mysterious dude in the corner to being very proactive of like mm-hmm. nope you right. are mucking this up, and I'm going to tell you why. And then he's also this other, because he has information, and yes. he's going to enlighten us. So not only is he mysterious moving them forward, but now he's an informative being as well. So he, he fulfills a lot of roles in that one little moment. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, he becomes almost uh, like the only other figure that we've had, apart from, I guess, Galadriel's voice in the voiceover, um, at the beginning in the prologue, who was that kind of like I have all the information and can give you exposition kind of figure was Gandalf, right? Um, and now Strider is in that sort of quasi Gandalf role, except he's a little scarier and less dependable because we don't get. Whereas with Gandalf, we were introduced to Gandalf by the flying hug from Frodo, right, and the right. obvious affection there. Right. Um, he was accepted, even though, you know, there was that whole business of some of the hobbits not accepting him and stuff. How well known he but was. But that just made me love him more. Oh, right? absolutely. Like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, so we, we get this, we get all the warm fuzzies about Gandalf. 
as our way to introduce his character. So when he starts, even when he and Bilbo are having their tense moment, right? Um, nevertheless, he is this like this figure that we are we are informed that we can trust. Whereas with Strider, we get the opposite of that. And now, but now he's in that Gandalf that Gandalfian role, right? Um, and um, and yet without any of that foundation. In fact, something like the opposite of that foundation. Yeah, no, it's interesting then to just, when when he does become out of his depth, not even that long after we meet him, um, it's that much more powerful, right? Because we're like, oh, good, we have this person who's kind of like telling us some backstory. He, know, he knows a bunch of stuff. And then it's like, oh, I can't heal this wound. You're like, okay, this is serious. Like, helps reinforce that. <laughs> but he <laughs> knows Strider how doesn't to... know what to do. Yeah, right. but he knows how to do it too. So you're like, Ooh, Kingsfall, ah, the weed, ooh, F plus play, the weed, wait, what? You know, the fact that he's able to, like, pull that knowledge out, you're like, oh, there's a lot more there. Right, right, right. Yeah, and yet he can't, he can't do anything. So, yes, it's, it's, it's a way of, and that's, isn't that a fascinating turning point? Like, that's the point um, where... I'm trying to figure out what, like, the the kind of cues we get as viewers, right? Um, We're clearly getting all of these, you know this guy is kind of sketchy cues from his introduction, right? Um, When is the moment when we turn around as viewers and are like, I completely trust Strider. He's totally a good guy and absolutely reliable, right? Like, when exactly does that happen? Do you think it takes that long, Weathertop? For me, that was like, oh, I would watch that scene. I, I was a freshman in college and I illegally downloaded it on my computer. I watched that scene so many times because for me that was the moment where he crossed over to being the ultimate protector and stepped into that leadership role there's so many things that were just like with that I definitely trusted him before that but I feel like that was the moment where it was like he is my hero (laughs) well and and, I think that's the first scene he shot Vigo shot when they that was like him stepping into the character for the first time I love hearing what they do like that's where you started. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, so because because I mean, I, I, when I'm thinking about the you know his uh, how his character is handled on screen um, prior to Weathertop, um, I keep I know so like as Namos Arcanum was just saying in the comments that the apple chucking scene is one where we see him trying to connect with the hobbits. Yes, but from the other side of the hill, like there's always a physical distance between him and the hobbits um, as if they're holding back from him, right? I mean, part of it is just like he's in the lead as they're going and the, uh, and the hobbits are following behind. But it really still looks like the hobbits are a group and they're Strider out in front. Um, and they're, you know, the, the, the kind of tone of voice, like think about the apple conversation, right? The second breakfast conversation, right? Um, you know, Mary and Pippin talking to each other, the kind of low lowered voices in which they're talking. And then like he overheard them. Right. Um, uh, and then the apple chucking, like it shows he's making an effort. He's not, it's not that he, he's reaching out to them, but he's still reaching out to them from a distance. And, um, and even that when he like shows up randomly out of um, out of nowhere and gives them the swords, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's still like I, I I still do feel that there's doubt up through the Weathertop point about whether or not he's a totally trustworthy dude. Um, 
but um yeah it's interesting because i i think yeah. in the inn when obviously you know he he protects them from the nazgul right? yeah from, mm. from coming in and stabbing them um that would certainly indicate that he doesn't want the nazgul to get them but i guess you're right like what could there be a, some sort of third motive like okay what is his what are their true intentions that's well, at that point that's a really good way to do it too because i love the way that scene is shot too because you know we think that the hobbits are about to get attacked and then we pan back and see that they're safely across the way but that's still such a good way to do it because all we know is that they got him out of the mouth trouble right there we don't actually know that he's a safe space yet because maybe he still wants the ring for a different reason and things like that. But Right. And yeah. there are ways in which he's not safe. Like, think of the, his tone of voice, right? You know, like, from the openly snarky, like, that is a rare gift, right, line to um, <clears throat> even when he's doing his exposition about the Nazgul, right, there's a certain element, like, he's not warm. He's not warm and fuzzy. He doesn't sound like super friendly. I mean, he's telling them, right? But there's something. I don't know. He, he, he his interactions with the Hobbit still have this edge, right? Mm. You know, um, begrudgingly almost. I mean, he seems like a little snarly, a little too cool. A little snarly. Like, yeah. I don't want to be involved in this malarkey, but here I am. You right. know, the, there, there's a little there's, bit of that vibe. Cold and distant. Yeah, yeah, definitely distant. Definitely distant. I I, I don't know exactly like how to characterize it correctly. Like the edge that I'm hearing in his voice when he's talking about the Nazgul. It's not quite condescending. It's not quite grudging. It's not. But there's a little bit of like disappointed parent. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you know, you guys are like annoyingly ignorant, kind of. And again, I'm not trying to say that he's like. Because the, the the reason I'm I'm trying to be cautious is that it's not that I think he's acting like a jerk necessarily, but again, there's, you know, by point of contrast, think of the difference between his whole affect and tone of voice when he kneels before, you know, when he offers Frodo his sword, um, at the Council of Elrond, right, or when he when he um you know kneels before Frodo and closes his hand over the ring mm, at the end of the that. movie, right, the kind of warmth that we see from his character the um you know the like love and respect for frodo like none of those things are there like he's and and honestly i think that they are here doing justice by an important element in the book the whole brie sequence in the book strider is absolutely on guard like he does not trust the hobbits you know that you know he tells them he doesn't trust them like this could have been a trick and he's like i'm totally like gambling here by like revealing myself to you but like what the heck <laughs> you know let's 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 have a go um so um so yeah i i definitely think that there's still um to me there's it's even yeah like the the weathertop confrontation like the fight scene, you know, him fighting off the Nazgul is obviously a huge deal. Um, to me, the healing scene um, is is even, and as far as like, because he is mostly interacting with people by throwing torches in their faces during the weathertop scene. In the post-weathertop scene, his interactions with the hobbits, I think, yeah. are, are that's where we can see a change. Yeah. Um, and again, they're tracking with the book there. Um, uh Sam still has his doubts about Strider, 
right after Weathertop. Um, and we're told there it's not until they meet Glorfindel that Sam's doubts are finally allayed, right? Um, and of course, the meeting of the Glor- Glorfindel stand-in and the uh, Weathertop sequence are almost simultaneous, of course, in the film. Um, but um, yeah. well, just before that, though, you, I mean, you're right. He does. He brings Sam in, you know, sort of to help. Hey, let's go look for Athalas. Like, he, yeah. OK, we're in this together. Yeah. Um, and use, brings and him uses up. the name that Sam would understand, too, which I love. Kingsville, you know, ah, it's a weed. Oh, it's a weed. Yeah. So yeah. That juxtaposition, too, of like, you know, the Athalas, the elvish word, like that could be snooty if he just left it at that. Yeah. But no, he brought it down to Sam and said, no, Kingsfoil. Oh, yeah, I know that one. It's a weed. All right, let's find it. You know, it became like a mission. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Nameless Arcanum was saying exactly that thing as you said that. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think it's they the way that they distance <clears throat> him and show him being distanced uh, seems an important element. And then, of course, we don't really see... Think about... like We've been focusing here about his interaction with the Hobbits. Think about like what we learn about him as a character on his own. Right? Not as a device. You know, Maggie, as you were saying, he begins as a sort of device in the, in the journey of the Hobbits. Right? Yeah. Um, but we've but done... But then the reveal of, of yeah. him, exactly. Like, you're, like, how they reveal the elements, I think, is really well done that it starts as a device that's just mysterious and gets us to move, sure. But then he has knowledge, then he has action, then he's protective, then he has elvish knowledge, then he has medicinal knowledge, then he has historical knowledge. Like right. there's a load of stuff going on and you're like, you are not just a ranger. Right. And at that point we don't even know what rangers are, but we kind of can assume from the term and everything else of, of what that role means. Right. And, and some sort of a wild man, but this is this is not just a wild man. There's something else in there that keeps piquing our interest. And then we meet Arwen, right? Um, and that, it looks, I, I would say, the first moment. Can you tell me if you think I'm right about this? The first moment where we begin to get any sense of his like interior life, of him as a character, other than how he relates to the hobbits, is the scene in the extended edition when he's singing the song, when he gives the shortest oh, Baron and Luthien paraphrase ever, um, uh, which I'm still a huge fan of. She died, right? That's, that's the Baron and Luthien story in two words. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, you, I, you literally can't do a shorter version. I mean, maybe, I got, okay, wait, the only, the only way you can do a shorter, uh, I, I have a one word summary. Escape. There we go. That's it. But that doesn't really do very much. She died is a better one. Um, anyway, uh, so that, that, we don't get much, right? But we get at least the idea of like there is some interiority happening there that is independent of the hobbits or their journey or what is going on, right? Um, and of course, it doesn't um, it doesn't get built on, right? We don't we don't um, it, it, it doesn't pay off until we meet Arwen, and that's the beginning, really, of you know of of his true unfolding as a character. What do you feel like that does? The scene with Arwen, where Arwen finds him um, and catches him off his guard. Um, uh, which is lovely want, and works in so many ways. I want to hear Ben's answer to that, but like that moment, too, I feel like was really important of, what's this? A ranger caught off his guard. Like, immediately puts her in this 
relationship to him where she's mocking him and judging him and kind of joking with him. So it's such a lovely introduction because it covers a lot of ground. It, yeah. it catches him off his guard. We introduce a new character, but also we know that she knows something about him and is kind of poking fun to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it definitely sort of sets him in a sort of, I don't know, preteen me was very much about this power hierarchy, right? So it's like, okay, oh my gosh, Shrider's here. He's awesome. He's so cool. And then it's like, oh, we got elves are like even here. Like they caught him off guard. Um, it does a lot to sort of put him in, not in his place, but, you know, situate a perspective. To, to situate then, him know, in context, Im- yeah. Immediately following, you know, their, their interactions totally. humanizes him. And I think it's that first, even... You know, it's interesting the the scene, yeah, the extended scene where he's singing, um, you know, Baron and Luthien, um, still is very sort of cold and distant. And yeah, you kind of got this glimpse, um, and but maybe it's just because it's sad. Um, the first like real warmth I feel like we get from him is between him and in in Arwen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when they first uh, meet, when we first meet them together, um, yeah. Yeah. Isn't there a moment too where he she reaches she reaches up to him or something? I feel like there's a softening moment where like he leans into her hand and he grabs and it, her hand and says, "Yeah, ride hard." Yeah, mm-hmm. we definitely have not seen that yet. Like he's just business and he's trying to be friendly and stuff in his strider way, but just business, moving forward, moving forward. And then you do get that moment of him almost like passing the torch, like, "All right, now I can take a moment and ride hard." Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a much softer moment than any. Obviously, mm. you know, we we learn that he cares about the hobbits, um, but it's all very intense. And then for this brief moment, obviously, and the music helps with all of this, right? Everything just sort of softens down. Um, yeah, yeah, we get this this tender moment between them. And we, I mean, I know we're talking about Aragorn, but we also get a, such a beautiful introduction of the elves because she's so separate to what his current situation is. You know, clean and strong and powerful and beautiful. And you know I'm the faster rider. You know that I can do this better than you can. And, oh, okay. You know, it, it, it does kind of give you that moment of game yeah. on. We're, we're about to meet something really incredible. And I love the awe from Sam. We're going to meet the elves, you know. Yeah. It's the set this up. first elf that we see other than the prologue, at least in the theatrical um, version. But, yeah. 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 And I really like, Ben, the point that you were making about the the sort of hierarchy there. Um, It does have that kind of building effect um, of and yeah, I hadn't really thought of it in terms of especially the catching him off his guard thing um, with the kind of putting Strider in his place in that way. But it is true, like the film does insist that humans are below elves hierarchically in some ways. And that's, we are in, that is our very first introduction to this idea that Strider, um, whose, you know, woodcraftiness has been established by that point. You know, he's the great, the guide and tracker and everything else. Um, and now, but he's one upped, you know, uh, right. Elves are on another level. Elves are on another yeah. level. Yeah. 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 Um, but also you get those little moments where you know that he's part of that world in some way, but we don't know how yet, you know, he speaks the language. He understands where things are. And I, this needs Elvish medicine. We have to get there. And then it's revealed in that, that wonderful bladed scene that he's spent quite a bit of time there being raised by them. But 
I'm, I'm still surprised we didn't get that in the theatrical, to be honest, because I feel like that explained a lot. That story-wise, I might have prioritized that Which scene is in that my one? main script. The one at, at his mother's grave? Yes. I, so That's... I remember watching, I, I think, uh, I mean, I'm sure it was the special features from Fellowship where one of the concessions they made to shorten the runtime was they tried to make, they decided that the first movie would be Frodo-centric. And so they did, they were like, okay, this is an Aragorn scene, we'll cut that because we just need to focus on Frodo. Yeah. Um, which I think makes some sense when you go back and look at what they added back in. Yeah. And we have talked about that a fair bit, the lens of, of a film that they pick kind of a through line to push things forward. So, you know, you definitely hear about it with Harry Potter, that Harry Potter is the through line. Everything else is on the cutting board, just why we don't have the house elves revolution and all these other right. elements that people like, but don't affect Harry's storyline. Yes. So that totally makes sense for a film like this. That's so long and so necessary for a lot of action to happen to pick someone like Frodo to be your through line. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because well, I don't know that we need to. The the question arises. Okay, do we feel like Frodo was the frame for that for that first movie, or do we feel like men were kind of the frame for that for that movie? Um, you know, it's interesting because I can certainly understand their choice to say they want to make the film clearly Frodo centric and focus on, you know, him as the hero's journey figure. You know, in the film, it makes a lot of sense. But I agree. Like I think you could make a real argument like imagining being back in that room when they were making that decision right way back um i think a really strong counter argument could be made to say actually frodo's not really what this film is about um this film begins and i i get i mean as and i said this before when we were talking about elrond i think um the weakness of men is the whole thematic frame of this, right? Like we begin with Isildur and his uh, failure, and then we end with um, with Aragorn being explicitly in that place. I mean, the, the climax of the what the film builds up to is Boromir's betrayal and Aragorn's success, right? And then the, the reconciliation scene with the death of Boromir. Um, the film technically ends with Frodo looking out on the Emin Wheel, right? Um, but that's like an epilogue. That's, that's, you know, I feel like the movie is done at, at, after the death of Boromir, really. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you, Ben. I don't think that, um, objectively speaking, looking at the film, I don't think that Frodo um, is really the compelling center, thematic center of that movie at all. I wouldn't think he is either, but I think that speaks to the strength of the story as a whole, that it's not obvious that it's Frodo-centric. Like, this would be a really fun essay to set students at the end of a semester, you know, mm -hmm. like tell me mm -hmm. what the frame is. And there'd be loads of right answers because I feel like you could play with each of those characters and the necessity of their arc and their actions and what's going on and what's shown and how. I think Frodo and his journey might have been like the bullet points on the left side of the structure page, right? Like we need Frodo to get to these places. And then everybody else could kind of fit in alongside. So it's not like it was Frodo necessary. Other things could happen to affect Frodo's story. Right. But I right. like that they balanced that as well as they did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to deny. I mean, obviously, 
it's impossible to not, to deny that the storytelling choices they made were successful. Um, you know, like so clearly, on some level, the choices they made to focus more on Frodo, um, and that enabled, I, I, I suspect, viewers to connect with the story more uh, more readily. Um, and obviously, as a, as a, as a piece of storytelling, that film was very very successful. Um, and yet, I do think that. Um, the I would not put Frodo's journey as one of the primary things that that movie is interested in, really. It's there. I'm not saying it's it's irrelevant, but I don't think it's the number one thing. Um, you think that struggle, the, the, the weakness of men, is the number one thing? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think... Yeah, because I think like the, the through line almost is less Frodo than the ring, actually. Mm -hmm. um, like the ring and the ring bearer. Because, um, yeah, like how Frodo connects with that, um, his relationship with the ring, like that doesn't really come into focus until later, like the Return of the King, basically. You know, as we're getting, uh, you know, it's really not until well, two towers. Once there, once he's in Athelion and Gollum is there, and we've got the Frodo Gollum ring thing happening. That's where we really. That's where the story, in the films especially, really begins to dig into the, what is the what effect is the ring having on Frodo? What choices are, is Frodo making? I mean, yeah, he's making the huge choice to become the ring bearer in the Council of Elrond. Um, so again, I'm not trying to downplay that entirely, but again, it's. It's less about, like, who is Frodo and why is he making the choices that he's making. The focus seems to me in the first film to be more on the ring. Yeah, we're, we're undoing the bad decisions that men made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that that in, what we're here to do. In the first uh -huh. film, yeah, absolutely. That's, and we get, you know, we get Elrond emphasizing that. We get, um, you know, Aragorn himself. Obviously, that, um, think about the way that the Aragorn-Boromir pairing, right, is played up from that first scene in uh -huh. Rivendell with the Shards of the Sword. Um, so, I love this because it kind of, I think, helps to explain, I don't know if we're ready to get into it yet, but, you know, the, what would probably be considered the largest character departure yeah, the, the reluctant for, for Aragorn yeah. is, okay, it makes, if, if this is the central struggle of the entire film, is that men are weak and they screwed up and we're going to undo that. All right. Now his, like a reluctant king. Yeah. Works. Concerned that he's going to make the same mistake makes a whole lot more sense. Yeah. And I have a lot of thoughts and I don't know which one to start with first because they're all very exciting, but I feel like the Frodo storyline, I need to think about a bit more as a boring structure base. And that's not a bad thing. You need a good foundation for things to be built off of. And Frodo's is really easy. Mm -hmm. He's a very standard, unlikely hero. Everybody can relate to this. You're very immediately engaged with this character. But it's a very simple understanding. He doesn't change significantly internally. He has a lot of hurts that he has to carry with him. So he's a very different character at the end than he was at the beginning because of a life lived. But mm -hmm. he doesn't actually have that sophisticated of an art, right? Like his job is to just keep carrying on. Whereas some of these others are way more complicated. 
and so intriguingly so, you know, and because we have all these different worlds and supernatural elements and other things that we're kind of figuring out alongside, the baseline of Frodo's story is a really good timeline, like bullet point to kind of track everything else along. Yeah. So I don't think we should think, like this is big picture adaptation discussion. I don't think we should think of through line or lens of a film being Frodo or Harry Potter or anything, meaning that they're the most important I it see. means it, yeah. it means it's a spine, you know. Right. It means it's the spine that okay. come out from. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, yes. Okay. Okay. And it would make sense then that when I'm thinking about things like the thematic center of the film, it's fine that that thematic center isn't necessarily in the same place as the totally. Yeah. Because yeah. Frodo's line is still going, but the thematic center will be somewhere on his line and will right. make it's always it going to be near near him, right? Yeah. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. It's true. I mean, he is as far as this theme is concerned, which again I would argue is one of the major themes, possibly the central theme of the Fellowship <sighs> of the Ring film, the whole weakness of men theme. Um, it, Frodo is like an object in there, right? I mean, think about, think about how Frodo is positioned between Frodo and Aragorn at the end of the film, right? The one of whom tries to take the ring from him, the other of whom defends him, right? In both cases, Frodo is passive. He's, he's not doing it. He's not making any choices. He's not doing oh, anything. Oh, he passes out all the time. <laughs> he just, I mean, he's just keeling over. Left, right, and center. He falls down. It's true. Yeah. He just falls down. And how many in times spot, does he just die? Fall down. Fall down. How many right. times has he stabbed through the gut and died? How many times? Yeah. Yeah, no, he just hits the ground. You're right. Yeah. Um, uh, it is really Frodo's go-to move, right? Yeah. Confronting the Witch King, fall over. Pass right? out. <laughs> right. Uh, confronting Boromir, fall oh. over. Right. And um, the, the Witch King one really defies logic, too. <laughs> well, he tripped. There was debris. <laughs> it could happen to anybody. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yes, yes, I agree. Um, but... Um, yeah, okay, but I, I want to go back to the so reluctant... he's an object. Yeah, he's <laughs> an object. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but yeah, but so it, it makes sense then. That he's But he's still the central object, right? And that, I think, is the point that you're making, right? He doesn't have to yeah. be the mover of the, of the action. He doesn't have to be, um, uh, yeah, again, the thematic center. He's just, he's just um, the center. The constant, you yeah. Know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but back to Ben, your point about the um, the reluctant king reluctant. business, because I this you are right that so the story that they are emphasizing, like the role that Aragorn plays in the weakness of men thing, right theme in the film. Where he's starting from is, in a sense, a position of strength. Like, it's a good sign that he doesn't want to be king. If Aragorn, within the, within the thematic context that we've been given in this film, had we met Aragorn and it was just revealed, oh yeah, Aragorn is the long-lost king, and now when we set out from Rivendell, he's going to be going forth to reclaim his inheritance and make himself king. Within the context of the thematic development of the film that'd be like a huge red flag right i mean maybe he's gonna 
be the one who turns out better than the others, but we'd have all kinds of anxiety about that. Aragorn saying, no, that's not me. And this is like, so if all we'd ever learned was what was in the Council of Elrond, right? The like, uh, he, he turned from that path long ago Mm. statement. If that's all we got, we didn't know anything about why, right? He would it could have just seemed like a loser, right, or something like a, like it could have just seemed like weakness purely a high on his part. Yeah, exactly. Lazy. But but instead, because we get introduced to this theme in that exchange in before the statue, before the shards of of Narsil, right, with the. You know, Isildur cutting the ring, uh, mural in the background, right? And the shards of Narso in front of them. And I'm thinking here, of course, especially about his conversation with Arwen at the end, right? Of the, at, the, at the end of that scene. Um, and there he, he's the one he's the one who sort of announces um, the theme. OK, hang on. Help, help, help me remember, folks. Does that scene, his conversation about like the same weakness runs in my veins, right? The same blood runs in my veins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that happen? The same blood, the same weakness, right? That's how that's how he says it, right? Mm-hmm. Is that before or after Grumpy Elrond's "I was there," Gandalf scene? After. It's after. after. So yeah. we've we've got we, so, okay. So so we set it up. The weakness of men gets set up in the prologue, right? And then we get reminded forcibly, for, forcibly of it by Elrond in mm-hmm. the yeah. I was there Gandalf, men can't be relied upon, right? Um, this is the official eyewitness elf testimony, reality about humans. Then, okay, so if it's after that, then now we see that Aragorn knows this. He yeah. agrees with Elrond. Yeah. yeah, he's totally self-aware of, yeah. of how this works. Um, and, and so he's removing himself from the equation. Right. Which is therefore now. So instead of making him look like the high school dropout now, it sh- this is a position of moral strength. Right. Yeah. I don't trust myself because I am wise and humble. I don't trust myself to do this. And that aligns him with Galadriel, doesn't it? I yes. passed the test. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Mm. Is, is some of that, I wonder, just like a product of modern storytelling? Um, that he he has to be so reluctant and humble. That was when I went home from the theater after watching the Fellowship of the Ring. That was all I could think of. I was mm-hmm. like, oh man, they just made him into like a squeamish modern, you know, reluctant hero. Um, they stripped Aragorn of all of his like mythic stature. And just instead decide to make him relatable to the uncertain modern person, right? That was that was what I was grumbling about the day I went now, home see, from, the, I, from the theater. And I didn't feel that at all. I mean, mm-hmm. you notice the differences, but I think I've always been quite drawn to the reluctant hero anyway. Because mm-hmm. it, it's not a modern thing; it's been around forever. But I do think it's way popular in you know the last thirty years or so. Yeah. Yeah. Because of that relatable element. But it didn't think it weakened any element of Aragorn to see him be reluctant. It made when he chose to take up that mantle and say to Boromir, our people, that hit so much harder. Yes. Because of what he had led up to that point. Because yes. of what had led up to that point. Yes. 
Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, this is this is exactly what I feel uh, because, again, at the time, I was all just full of the contrast between film Aragorn and book Aragorn, um, whose very mythic status has always been one of the most important things to me about Aragorn's character. And I still think is one of the most important thing about Aragorn's character in the book. Um, but but that's exactly that's what it blinded me to exactly that, Maggie. Um, they are. Um, I think I would have said, this is me trying to like project back to what I would have said 20 years ago, but um, I think I would have said that they had made his character weak. Hmm. And that would have been wrong. Like that is, an, uh, that is I, I would now say that, that, is, that is an utterly incorrect assessment of the film's depiction. Not, not thinking about the contrast, but thinking about how he's represented in the film. That is the, the his reluctance shows his wisdom and his strength. Um, he, is, he is stronger than Boromir, because he doesn't just with confidence think that he um, like Boromir sort of, th you know, and again, I always I was I was already struggling with Boromir turning away and leaving the hilt of Narso on the floor. You know, uh, I, I was still like, but Boromir would never do that. Holy cow. Like, how could you possibly, um, uh, you know, but but nevertheless, like what they're doing there, showing how Boromir is, he's moving past these things, right? He's not learning from the lessons of history. Um, he is, uh, and, and this is going to set him up for the, uh, the, the failure that he's going to have later on. Whereas Aragorn, you know, has this totally different perspective. Aragorn is, is the one who is stronger, even though, you know, Boromir is the one who exudes all the confidence, right? Um, and yet, that is uh, that the, the the apparent difference gap in the confidence and outward mm. strength between the two of them belies the real inward strength that they're focusing on and building on. I, I think that's done really, really well in the mm -hmm. film. If I can shut the other voices off long enough to notice that. Look how far you've come. I, I'm trying, man. <laughs> <I'm> trying. <laughs> so, do, you, do you think then it would have been a tougher sell if they if he was you know can can you tell a story these days with a hero who's you know has probably like to the start yeah i don't know it's... you can if you but i feel like that i mean i'm thinking superheroes and things like that like tony stark is always going to be the the mm -hmm. strong confident trying to think of all those words that are kind of mean but also true for tony stark mm -hmm. so like i feel like you can but then that becomes quite a defining element of their character so I feel like with Aragorn, if he came on super strong, kingly at the very beginning, I don't know if I would have liked him as much. And I think it was really important for us to like him. But I also think it was really important for us to not trust him, then trust him, then love him. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a mm -hmm. real interesting path yeah. in yeah. our relationship to that character that if he just came in as king, I don't relate to that. And I, I guess it's not all about relation, too. I don't want to put too much onus on, like, well, that's all about how the, the audience feels. That's but. exactly where I would place the emphasis. That, to me, is the major difference. Like, when you talk yeah. about, like, this is... Like, we talk about audiences nowadays and a modern perspective. That, to me, is the fundamental shift. Is hmm. that the way our mode... The modern mode of digesting stories is to relate okay. ourselves and project ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and that is alien. To, it's one of the things that makes, I mean, as a medieval literature 
professor, it's one of the things that always makes reading stories of very different periods, like the Middle Ages, fundamentally difficult for... Um, I, I mean, I, I have... You know, I've taught classes where I have students who are saying things like, but I can't relate to Beowulf. And I'm like, I know you're doing no it kidding. wrong. You're doing yeah. it wrong. You're not <laughs> supposed to like nobody reads Beowulf and says like, that is me. Like I am. No one he, finds yeah. themselves. No one finds themselves in Beowulf. Like, he, this is telling my story. Right. Like I'm I'm connected to that. Like that's and I'm, and I'm not trying to mock that. Like that's that's a perfectly yeah. respectable way. Like that's that's a powerful way to connect with stories. But that's not the only way of telling well, stories. It's not the only way of reading stories. And also the intention, right? Like the author yeah. of Beowulf was not like, how will my audience like this? They just wrote a story. Whereas now there really is this connection. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's not that I think that there's no uh, question of like considering audience, but it's just like the, uh, what they're considering is something quite different about the yeah. audience. Um, and, you know, Tolkien was more of that world than of the modern world when it came to storytelling in a lot of ways. You know, like he he was not on board with the um, and even and when I say the modern world, by the way, I'm not just talking about the modern world since Tolkien. Right. This has been this is one of the things that has been uh, I mean, I, I blame the novel for this development in modern story reception. Novels have from the beginning. It's been one of the defining elements of novels that they are something that you connect with. Um uh, rather than even when they're like either completely like, uh, that doesn't mean they have to be realistic in the sense of like oh this is a perfectly plausible plot and this could have happened to anybody like um, you know they can be you know wild strange adventures of very peculiar people in very unusual circumstances but nevertheless still the way in which we sort of connect with them you read I mean, but even go back to the beginning of the novel right you read Robinson Crusoe and you are very much being invited to be like, what would it be like to be stranded on a desert mm. island, right? And what would I have to go through? And what would I feel under these circumstances, right? That is the attraction of Robinson Crusoe, the novel, which is one of the first novels, right? Um, but uh, whereas when you're reading Paradise Lost, right? That's not what you're doing. You're not situating yourself in that story in the same extent. Um, now, there are many people who have read Paradise Lost and, in fact, saying, I can really relate to Satan, uh, you know, the Satan figure that Milton represents. There are many people who have had that reaction to him, but that's not how, fundamentally, that's not how the work of art was designed, right? It's not, it, it's not the way it works. Anyway, this is a huge, a huge shift. It has become so dominant in the modern world that... Um, it's still one of the things in which Tolkien stands out, I think, in a lot of ways, even compared to other contemporary to him. Like if you go back and look at um, people like George MacDonald or William Morris, who were writing fantasies in the generation before Tolkien, it's not just a mm -hmm. chronological thing. It's not just an early 20th century thing. Um, uh, the Princess and the Goblin is still a novel in a way that um, The Lord of the Rings is not a novel. Which, remember, Tolkien actually always resisted that label. Um, yeah. the, the Lord of the Rings is, isn't a novel. It's a romance. It's a historical romance. Um, uh, which just means story, <laughs> basically. Uh, and so, anyway. Um, um, 
Yeah. So, um, Nameless Arcanum says, aren't we supposed to connect with Frodo, though? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense of he is the framework. Now, here I'm thinking, to Maggie, I'm for a moment talking about the book here, right? Um, book Frodo, are we supposed to connect with Frodo? Yes and no. Are we supposed to relate to him? Is he's, are we supposed to find ourselves in Frodo? No, not unique. Again, it's not to say that Tolkien was against you connecting to or relating to any of the characters. Um, but that's not fundamentally the storytelling function that it has. What I do think he was interested in managing um, is not the character as someone that we connect to and someone we relate to, but as the Hobbit viewpoint, as the framework from which we're looking at the world. Um, so he gives us Hobbits collectively as a way for us to connect to this strange world that we're seeing, this strange world that is full of big people, right? These big mythic epic figures walking around. Um, and the hobbits are not like that. And so they are more at our level. Um, but I really don't think that we are supposed to connect with the experience of Frodo. Like, for instance, I think that we are supposed to connect to the experience of Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice. Right, like we're supposed to connect um, with, oh, and then Jane Austen plays all these games with that. Um, it's one of her favorite things to play with. Like, to what extent do we enter into the uh, perspective of Emma uh, in uh, in Emma? Um, but anyway, she's already uh, in the early part of the 19th century, kind of playing with the conventions of the ways in which we um, we find ourselves to be there in the story with the characters um and that no i don't think we're supposed that tolkien envisioned us that frodo being that to us as we go through um but um anyway yeah sorry i'm sorry i'm this is me not going off on a jane austen tangent because i've just actually like last week finished my my periodic reread of all of Jane Austen's novels. And I was so struck with like the progression of what she's doing from uh, Pride and Prejudice up through Persuasion. It's so fascinating when you read them in order. But anyway. Um, I, I love tangents yeah. like that, though, because it gives us a different context, you know? So I, I think it's lovely to kind of pull from these different yeah. things when we're talking about concepts. Because we know Lord of the Rings, we can talk about these characters, we get super excited about it. But it is nice when you can kind of compare it to these other things, too, and be like, look at this device here. Look at this idea there and how yeah. this is managed. So yeah. I, I'm fine with those Jane yeah. Austen tangents. They're great. <laughs> so I don't think I don't think it's I, I, I don't think I was wrong to leave the theater and say this is a they've modernized it. Right. right. I think they have modernized it. I think that they did make Strider relatable in a way um, to which word I used to even just try to resist even existing <laughs> back in the old times. I always hated that word because it's, it's such a sloppy word. I still dislike it. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sadly imprecise word. Um, but, um, but anyway, uh, cause it, it's one of those words that you're like, you're saying something It's an adjective that applies to a character, but it's saying something about you. It's not saying something mm. about them. Mm. Right. And that's what bothers me about it. I find it, I, I, I find it a really, and incredibly really, subjective. So how are we yeah, it's a, it's that? a super yeah. squishy word. So people say he's a relatable character as if they're saying something about the character when what you're actually saying is something about yourself. I could, I found mm -hmm. myself able to relate to that character because mm -hmm. you'll find other people who didn't relate to that character and they won't consider that character relatable for that reason. Mm -hmm. And so when you're saying, 
I think this this is character is a very re- relatable character. It sounds like you're saying something, but you're, act, you're you're saying something about the character, but you're not saying something about the character. You're saying something about yourself. Anyway, that's what I always disliked about the word. But whatever. Point is, they clearly do make Strider a relatable character uh, in this film, and and it's successful. Like it's 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 good and it works in lots of ways. Um, but. Um, uh, I didn't agree with Edith here. I didn't think that he was like supposed to be a type or supposed to be flat, but I do feel like the films did try to give a bit more to it to kind of, I don't know about round. I feel like Aragorn's more trajectory. But One of the things that, and this actually, this is connected interestingly back to the discussion we were having about their choices, the, their editing choices in the film to make the first film more photocentric and to take out some of those Aragorn interiority scenes, right? And, um, you know, learning more about his character. We don't get any scenes like that in the book, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, nothing. Like, we, we never get a scene where we're just seeing Aragorn by himself, mm. learning what he's thinking. We learn more about him, but we mm. stick to the hobbits all the way through. Yeah, but you don't have that thoughtful moment, the longing for his mother, the thoughts of death. You, yeah, we don't have any of that. No, there's nothing like that to simply humanize Aragorn's experience in his own. I mean, it's not to say we never learn anything about him, right? But we're always seeing him from the outside. In that way, and there are times when Tolkien invites us to wonder. One of the moment, one of the, the the biggest example I'd give of this is the moment right when they're about to leave Rivendell. Um, I was about to say we just talked about this in exploring the Lord of the Rings. We just talked about this in exploring the Lord of the Rings about nine months ago, um, but uh, <laughs> it was super recent. Uh, but um, the scene when they're all sitting around, literally sitting around outside on the steps, waiting to leave. Uh, uh, and Gandalf is still inside talking to Elrond. Um, And he describes Aragorn sitting on the steps, um, just sitting and thinking. We don't know what he's thinking, right? We're not told what's in his head. The fact that he's sitting there by himself in this very reflective stance. Um, And then the narrator says, only Gandalf, maybe, knew what this moment meant to Aragorn. We're not told what the moment means to Aragorn, right? But we're told that it means something that almost nobody understands. What, like that it's a huge, huge deal that nobody, you know. So there are moments like that where Tolkien actively invites us to kind of imagine what is going on behind the surface, but he never just shows us what's going on behind mm-hmm. the surface. So scenes like that one with the statue in, you know, and the shards of Narsil in Rivendell is exactly the kind of scene. And then Aragorn talking about his own feelings and his own perspective is what, what we just don't get in, mm. um, in, in the book. It's not to say, again, it's not to say that he's never humanized. It's not that we never learn, but it's all at second hand. We have to do the work to kind of figure out what's going on with him. I also think that so much of that character development is played so well based on actor choice because Viggo Mortensen was recast, right? It was, it was, oh, I'm blanking on his name now. I forget the name too, who, who it was. That was. Doesn't matter. It was somebody else yeah. and, and he came he's in like two weeks after. He's a vampire? Yeah, what movie was he in? Queen of the Damned? 
That's okay. going to bother me. Keep going. Somebody, <laughs> so, yeah, somebody will come up with it for us. Thanks. Yeah, yeah someone will come um, up with it. But he came in like two weeks after Prince Photography had already started or something. But yeah. it just shows, I don't know why they recast it. It's not like I was in that room. But it does show how a singular actor's performance can portray characters differently. Yeah. So clearly they had this guy whose name is just going to punch me in the face in a second. They had him... And it wasn't delivering whatever they needed it to. And I, I do think there's something so incredible about Viggo Mortensen's performance that Aragorn is subtle and soft, but strong and fierce. I mean, he just carries mm-hmm. the depth of Aragorn, I think, so well. Stuart Townsend, Stuart thank Townsend. you. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> thank you, Madagoc. That was really distracting me. Yep. I was sure really going to say something profound, but I just think that Viggo Mortensen is an incredible actor, and the, that all came out in changing Aragorn's character mm-hmm. because he didn't change it, but he changed it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. No, and it's it's funny hearing him talk, and you know, he was thrust into it. He had an afternoon to decide, and he hadn't read the books, but then when he was kind of going through it he was like oh i you know he's familiar with vol songs and you know saga the vol song and he's like okay i kind of get what's going on here and you're like yeah all right (laughs) yeah i love that he's just like nonchalantly familiar with vol songs you know right yeah. yeah. And wasn't it also his son that was basically like, you have to do this or yeah, we're not that's, that's story I remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so like going back to, um, uh, going back to that, again, the trajectory, right. Of his character, um, and the non weakness, right. Of his decision of his reluctance to be King. Think about how it, where it places the locus of the drama in his character all the way through. Right. To be king, and so, you know, Maggie talked about high school dropout, right? Instead of looking like a high school dropout, he's being, he's being wise, he's being humble. But that's the wrong decision. He hmm. needs to step up, in fact, right? So what you have is, um, men are weak, and tend to be power hungry, but that doesn't mean that the solution is so. Therefore, like. Anybody who's a good person should totally not seek power because like, actually, we kind of do need somebody to seek power. Right. Hmm. That has to happen. It's kind of true of politics today anyway. Right. Exactly. Like you still want good people at the table. Exactly. Right. So I think um, I I, have long supported a premise that says the um, the thing thing that should exclude people from being a presidential candidate um, is if they want to be president but um anyway uh like so we, we need only unwilling heroes uh in in uh in 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 in, in politics I, I feel very strongly about this but um but yeah so his so the question of like is he going to do the right thing which is so it's it becomes a really complicated situation right because Seeking power, being confident in the way that Boromir is confident at the beginning, that's not a good thing, right? It is good for him to resist that. And yet it is like he must step up. He must step forward. It would be wrong for him not to do that. Um, And so the way that Aragorn's character kind of navigates that, um, and I think his relationship with Boromir um, is, uh, is... one of the primary places where we see this being developed mm. all the way through um, the scene, which I think is 
a low-key crucial scene for the development of Aragorn's character is the the one about um, the I have seen the White City uh, uh, scene with Boromir. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're hearing Boromir's love for him, which of course, this is of course, it's such an important setup to the um, their final conversation in Boromir's death scene, right? Um, the Our People moment, Maggie, that you were pointing to before, and how hard that hits in that mm-hmm. moment. Um, but that sense, like, the thing that Boromir has, like, Boromir's not just a jerk, right? He's not just a bad character. Right. Um, he, the, the love uh, and loyalty for his city that he has, his motivations are good all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aragorn's choice to not pursue power is a good choice, like morally speaking. But in doing so, he's failing to do what Boromir has done, right? And so the way that they set it up as, you know, so here's Boromir and Aragorn who kind of each start off with one half of the picture, right? Um, You know, uh, love for his people and civic duty and willingness to put himself out there and do the right thing. That's what Boromir's got, right? But he doesn't have the humility. He doesn't have the recognition of uh, the weakness of men, right? And then and the, 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 the unlikelihood of overcoming that, right? And then, but Aragorn has that. He has that, the, that knowledge, but he's, but he's lacking in the other uh, and failing in the other by not stepping forward and taking up the, his position he should have. Um, so the way the two of them come together and Aragorn... Because there's a sense in which he becomes almost Boromir's heir, right? Like he's going to take over from Boromir. The you know he's he's going to go save their people. Um, he's going to go and accomplish what Boromir wanted to accomplish, um, and that's I think really just so beautifully done in the film, mm-hmm. and it's what makes the the death scene so powerful mm-hmm. and Aragorn's arc so interesting, um, which again. I couldn't, I couldn't see until I could get over being offended by it. But, um, um, but it's that I, I think it's 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 really fascinating how that gets handled. It's just making me think about the other things we see as the films go on too. You know, we we get these lovely moments of Boromir and Faramir, and building out him as a brother and as a a beloved leader of his people and crazy father but really loved by his father as well and you know so Mm -hmm. getting the depth of that character later on it feeds back into the import of how that moment hits in the end of the first one because obviously we've rewatched it 37,000 times right it it all just builds so the first time you watch it you get one thing the second time you watch it you get something more then the special features come out then the extended editions come out the way they built our viewing experience I think really capitalized on expanding those characters too. Right. So we got to digest so much more of their arcs and, and their sophistication with the rewatching. Yeah. 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 And man, I, I was just thinking also just going back to Aragorn's arc, you know, we see him once he gets to Rohan and he starts interacting with Theoden and Theoden's decision as King, mm-hmm. we start to see him kind of like, Okay, wait, like, if I was in charge, we'd be doing this stuff differently. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's right. interesting to see that transitions kind of start, start to happen. That's great. Him. And you just um, see him, like, getting really frustrated and wanting to do the thing, but he said he wasn't going to do the thing, so he just yeah. love that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, uh, I mean, the, yeah, the way in which Theoden is 
it's like simultaneously a negative and a positive um mm-hmm. like role model <laughs> for for aragorn right um i yeah 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 no there's um it's an interesting way for the i think the films to handle that transition of aragorn's yes. that development for him because of course Odin is very different in in the books and the films yes uh, as well and um yeah it makes some makes some very different choices um I hadn't considered how Theoden's arc in the films really influences Aragorn's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, you know, yeah, it is, we probably shouldn't get into a whole analysis of Theoden, but yes, I, I, I agree. I think that that's, um, the way that Rohan both like geographically and politically serves as this middle ground, this transition from I'm the ranger in the wilderness who's turned away from being king to what we see, you know, to I am in armor saying for Frodo, you know, and it is not this day right in front of the army. Um, uh, in the return of the king. Yeah. I mean, that's it, it is really, really fascinating how they shape his story through that way. So, yes, that's me not talking about that right now because we don't right have Right now, put a pin yeah. in that yeah. one. Exactly. We also can't start that with six minutes left. Like, exactly. oh, goodness. Exactly, we, yeah. We want to spend more time on that. Yep. Um, I was also just thinking of different moments of Aragorn and Boromir and how their relationship shifts, too. And the scene that really sticks out to me is uh, after Gandalf falls in the minds of Moria and Aragorn standing up, get them up, get them up, push them on, for pity's sake. You know, you have this real clash of emotion versus action. And I, I, it's not like that's the moment we start to see Aragorn become the leader. I didn't feel this monumental shift. Right. But it's just like further evidence of he's taking on this leadership. Well, but he's I, not quite giving in to the emotion of men. There, mm-hmm. there was an interesting stretch there. Yeah, I, I did feel like there was quite a shift, at least when I saw yeah. it. And I remember thinking, okay, so like you know, you have these slow mo shots after after Gandalf mm. um, and that ethereal voice. Yeah, of just like mm. Aragorn, like watching and sort of slowly backing away. I just remember thinking, part of what he's like, oh, okay, this, yeah, he's really sad. Gandalf just died. But he's also like, oh, I'm in charge now. Like, I have to carry this and I'm not ready. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that was part of that moment. Yeah. You know what it makes me think of? Um, Mm -hmm. It makes me think of the beginning with him. Like that physical distance that I was talking about before between him and the hobbits in those early pre-Rivendell, but pre-Weathertop sequences, right? Um, That is the moment when he becomes the leader. Gandalf has fallen. So now it's up to him. Gandalf was the leader before. Now he's the leader and he knows he's the leader and he has to do it. And the first thing we see him do is distancing himself again, emotionally distancing himself in that moment. Right. Um, And it's almost like we're back to chucking apples at people's heads again. You know, (laughs) in the and again, I know there's kindness there. There is a connection there. But again, you can't see him. He's off screen. He's off screen and lobbing apples across from the other side of the hill. Or again, like that. What the conversation that precipitated that sequence, the apple in the face sequence, um, of you know him saying, "We continue on. We're you know we just you've just had breakfast, right? We're not stopping um, again for another meal right away." Is a 
like a light version of the get them up, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and let's keep going and not, we can't stop to grieve over Gandalf's death. Um, that kind of distance, that kind of, you know, I'm going to walk five yards in front of you and expect you to follow me uh, kind of leadership role. Does it seems to me kind of echo that we don't see that for long. Like he doesn't stay in that mode. Um, well, because we're almost immediately into Lorien, and so, um, and that changes a lot of things after that. But, um, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I feel like I do feel like the movies takes, you know, some of his because there is some, you know, he's indecisive or doubting of his decisions in the book uh, many times. It does kind of take that and ratchet it up to eleven. Um, but then there are times in the films, specifically at the end of Fellowship where he's very sure of what to do next, which is go get Mary and Pippin. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and yeah. Was not and to keep sure them together. The right... yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the other moment that I would point to of him figuring out, mm-hmm. him taking, like, right after Moria is the first place where he's actually acting as the leader of the company. But that moment after Parth Gallen, after the death of Boromir um, and the breaking of the Fellowship is where he is... He's now mm-hmm. beginning to act as a leader differently. I mean, that, that is definitely another important transition moment in his development as leader. And think of what it means. Like, think of how he is in that moment um, that we will not leave, you know, Merry and Pippin to the torment of the orcs. He is, he's doing both. When we talked about like the, the Aragorn pole and the, the Boromir pole, right? The love versus humility. And, and um, he's, he's, he's doing them together, right? The hand of the, 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 the fate of the bearer is in my hands no longer, right? I'm not going to follow the ring. I am turning away from the ring. So I'm doing my humility thing, right? That I was doing before. I'm still holding to that. Um, but now I'm going to be an active leader in, but we're going to go find Merry and Pippin. I'm going to, like, the love and loyalty that, that Boromir had. Um, again, not to say that he never had any of it, but but again, like, I, I think that we, we can see him and the path that he's going to take, right? That yeah. path of following Merry and Pippin is what is ultimately going to lead him, you know, to Minas Tirith and, and, uh, and the crown. Well, and it continues up into, you know, kicking Theoden in the, in the gut and going to the gates of Mordor and saying, then we're going to buy him 10 minutes of time while we die. You know, yes. we are going to sacrifice everything so Frodo yes. gets a chance. Yes. I mean, he was prepared and, and making yes. ultimate sacrifices. Exactly. The way in which, in the end, what being king means to him, right? When he is acclaimed and he is leading the armies and everything, and he has all the power there at the almost all the end of the ring, but apart from, he has all the non-ring power and authority there at the end, and how yeah. does he use it? He uses he subordinates his own good and all of their good to mm-hmm. just try to help Frodo, right? Like we're all gonna, um, we are. I, I, you know, my first, my culminating act as king is to to shoot for the role of best supporting actor, right? Like it, it's all about Frodo. We're just gonna try to help um, if we can. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that that's really it's fascinating to see how they have that, how, how they work out that trajectory. And I do think that their choice, which I never would have thought I would 
be in support of. I think that their choice to make him a reluctant king um, plays into this really, really well and really, really effectively. And at the end of the day, does not, I think, um, uh, does not, I think, um, undermine his the the ultimate position that he gets, like the place where he ends up. The place where he ends up is very similar to where he ends up in Tolkien, um, even to the point of sacrifice at the end. Um, yeah, Phil was saying, how many of those pe- folks at the Black Gate even knew who Frodo that. was? Yeah, it's true. Though, though honestly, again, I love how they handle that. Notice, because he has two connections, right? First, there's the speech that he gives on horseback when, you know, the big, you know, men of the West speech, right, that he delivers. That's the speech to the army, right? Then, when he's on foot, which, I don't know why he dismounts. Riding your horse into battle probably would have been smarter. But anyway, he's dismounted um, and he turns, and it's not to the army, it's just to Merry and Pippin and the, you know, and, and, and Legolas and Gimli that he says for Frodo in this quiet voice. He's not shouting to the whole army. So we can see both you know, both the love and the loyalty, right? Both the, um, um, both the, you know, the sort of the, the, the political side and the personal side. Uh, yeah. Uh, the way that they bring both those two together, I think is really, is really exciting. It's really fun. Cool. Well, we are out of time. I think, I don't know if we finished talking about Aragorn's character, but that was good. We that didn't was... even get to return of the King. I mean, no, we didn't get to return. Still... Yeah, no, yeah. we're just, no, and like Eowyn, I want to talk about that relationship. Oh with yes, Arwen. And yeah, we. I was yeah. I was wanting to talk about Arwen more, but we didn't get to it, and that's probably for the best. Um, yeah. And yeah. somebody did ask earlier, are we going to do this with all the characters? I feel like you can probably say yes to that, but we won't do only that for the next six months. Like we'll probably interject a few episodes about other things. But yes, we will. Yes. We will. I we're feel not, like we're just going to talk about this for. But yeah, I mean, this is there. There are. I mean. Look, there's no question. We're talking about adaptation. We're specifically interested in Tolkien adaptation. So, yeah, surprise, surprise, the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings fans, it's a kind of a foundation of uh, of this discussion here. Um, and it's also a film, I think I said this when we first started talking about it, it's also like one of the only films out there that gave us as comprehensive and intense of a behind the scenes access as we've ever had to anything. Yes. So not only do we have a story that we sat and watched and multiple versions of it, we also have so much about what went into it to create that, that that is absolutely part of the storytelling now in, in so many people. And like, I, you know, and there's so many filmmakers that it's that this trilogy that got them into film, myself mm-hmm. included. I didn't know film was a thing you could do until you watch some of those behind the scenes and figure out what the jobs are and, yeah, so all of that, just to say this is a pretty iconic trilogy for many, many reasons. Yeah. And works for adaptation and storytelling. Totally. Totally. All right. So um, we'll be back. So we won't be broadcasting next week. I'm going to be out of town next week. Um, I'm going to a convention, the ZenKaiCon convention down in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, Stop, that's where I'm from, Corey. I know, I'm going to your hometown to... Uh, oh my God, to, have to... a whoopie pie for me. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. There are some, uh, some things that are important when you go down to, uh, to, to, to Lancaster. Um, we used to spend a lot of time in Lancaster when we lived in Delaware, but um, oh, it's one of our favorite places fun. to go. Um, fun. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so... Um, uh Two weeks. Two weeks. We'll be back uh, at the end of March. Um, 
and uh, we'll see. Maybe we'll talk more Peter Jackson stuff. Maybe we'll shift back and talk about um, some Rings of Power stuff that's come out. We might. We at some point we need to talk about the War of the Rohirrim too, which we haven't mm. really talked about much. Um, so I think that will be that will be very interesting. I um, uh, love some of the things that I am have been hearing about that. So. Mm. It was also mentioned here that we should talk about Lotro at some point. And yeah. I know that's massive, but like it's also an incredible adaptation. So maybe we just spend some time thinking about games too and, and what adaptation in gaming is like. Because the Harry Potter ones just come out too, and I feel like that would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, agreed. Agreed, yeah. I think we can talk yeah. about... Uh, it, would, it would be fun talking about um, both some spe- some specific stuff i mean the lotra adaptation is phenomenal um but looking you know applying some of our analysis of adaptation mm-hmm. to that context i think would be really interesting and from there um thinking about what um what this sort of tells us about games as an adaptation medium uh as well i think mm-hmm. would be would be fa- yeah would be at some point you'll have to share with us some uh you know down the road return to moria Yes. Uh, insight. Yeah. yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, looking yeah. forward to that. Um, yeah, that has been so cool. Um, but um, yeah, oh yeah, Druid's Fire. We'll definitely we'll definitely talk about seeing if we can get some of the Lotro folks on with us when we talk about Lotro later. That would be cool. One of them's my cousin, so I'm pretty sure we can make that happen. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> did you not? I did not. My first published article was about Lotro because. Dan let me into Turbine's offices and I got to interview everybody for like three days. <laughs> it was great. And That's then I just cool. sat and watched him play for about 12 hours and took notes. <laughs> right. Nice. Cool. Cool. Nate. <laughs> Nate. All right. Um, cool. Well, yeah, so we'll, we'll definitely, we'll definitely get there. We'll definitely, we'll definitely talk about that stuff too. So awesome. Uh, thanks everybody as always for joining us and uh, we will see you guys in a couple weeks. Thanks everybody. Bye now. See ya.